What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. It's another walk and talk. I think this is the fifth or the sixth walk and talk. It's Central Park. It's Sunday. It's around noon, midday. It's beautiful. It's green. Not as busy as last Saturday when I did one of these just after I got back from Mumbai. Um, in the past week, been in San Francisco for a day, Philadelphia for a day pretty confused as far as the time goes and I think one of the ways that's well two of the ways that that time confusion hits me I don't know about you is like you you're asleep and then you're suddenly awake but you feel like you should be sleeping way longer even though you've slept for 10 hours and you hobble around and then you go outside and the sun seems like it's at the completely wrong angle so that's been a lot of this week uh, today I've got a, a bunch of questions from people that are going to think through out loud. This is all stream of consciousness. I want to talk about the things that strategists say to themselves. I had about 47 people respond on Instagram a couple of weeks ago, and I used that in, in the talk in Mumbai. And then I just put it in, uh, in notes on my iPhone, took some screenshots and shared that the other day, and the thing has had... That tweet has gone bananas. I don't know what happened. I think it's had... I don't know, 500 retweets, maybe 200,000 views or impressions. I almost wasn't going to share it because Twitter's been a little bit little bit strange with me the past month or two, a little bit angry, too much subtweeting from people, and people that I like as well. It's being mean to other people that I like, but not calling them out. I, I don't know. Don't get it. Don't get it. Put your time into creating stuff, folks. Don't need to do that. Uh, and then a couple of days ago, I asked people how they would respond to themselves if they caught themselves in that kind of negative thought that I shared, or in those negative thoughts. And I think I've got about 60 of them, so I'm going to read some of these today. And then I've got about 10 questions from, <laughs> well, one of them includes, does strategy need a, a rebrand, a reposition? trying to think what's really on my mind right now. I'm just looking forward to, it's been a really, really busy spring, trying to get to the end of June, not in a nihilistic way, but just in a a sprinting kind of way, and then got some time off with the family in July, which I'm really looking forward to with uh, with all the activities they do. They're kind of active like 11 months of the year, three to six, seven days a week. It's pretty intense, but it's the life we've chosen. It's very privileged, and they're doing stuff that we couldn't quite get access to back home and I guess our sacrifice is not having a, a huge network of family and friends right near us and so in July we're going to catch up with a bunch of family and friends in Europe which we're really excited about likely hitting Dublin, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, Vienna and Linz and staying a little bit longer than we normally would not that there's much of a normal with us, but I think we're going to get almost a week in Amsterdam, which I'm just stoked about. I can't wait. I've never been there. Keep hearing great things about all of those cities. Been to Dublin a few times, so family there. Amsterdam and Copenhagen, people talk up a lot. So very, very excited. I've been recording a few interviews to hopefully get us through July as well. And uh, I'm excited to get those live. And then I guess I've got to think about whether I continue the same format, whether I mess with it a little bit, do it more epic, do some live podcasts on in venues, etc. Just try to take more risks, maybe do series. I'm not exactly sure just yet. But let me start off by 
running you through the thoughts that strategists say to themselves when they're mean. Is that a good place to start? Um, I'm not going to shout out everyone who, because it will take ages, but I won't shout out everyone who gave me their thoughts on this. But I do appreciate them. I have mentioned you in, the, in my email newsletter and in the presentation as, as well. And I'm probably going to repeat some of that or maybe all of that at the Strategy Supersizer Mega Class, which is this Friday in New York, then Monday in New York, then we've got Chicago and LA. If you're coming, looking forward to meeting you. <laughs> it's going to be good fun. Good fun. All right. So what do strategists say when they're mean to themselves? Just going to read this list, see if you recognize yourself in it, and then we'll talk about it. Okay, the first one. I can't be clear and simple. I'm arrogant. I'll never be as good as other planners. I have no idea what I'm doing and rely on volume to get to the answer. My work isn't original or interesting, let alone insightful. Too much what, not enough why. Got to focus on the benefits of what I do. I'm not good enough. I have no original thoughts. I'm a chameleon for validation. I'm obvious and naive. I always say I could do better and better, although people think it's okay. My creative briefs don't seem to lead to great work. I'll never be as good as the people I admire. Real creative pros can sell, smell my deficiencies. I'm way too slow at this. I could take my thinking further, I'd just get lazy after a while. I can't do anything without bouncing it off someone. Any trainee could have done better. Someone will notice I've not made sense. I haven't been creating clarity on projects for my team the way I should be. My work is weak, unoriginal, uninspiring. My work is not as impactful as it should be. I'm making it up as I go and I'm going to get found out at some point. What I've just written is a load of bullshit. I'm not sure if anything I'm doing is good. What's so different about this strategy I've created? I'm always afraid I'm not good enough, even after six years of successful work. I'm too young to be doing strategy. I struggle to accept love. I'm not good enough. I've never been, I've never done enough to nail the brief or help creative. I don't belong here. Nobody trusts my judgment. I must bore the creatives. They've seen a lot of this for sure. There's someone better. I don't have what it takes to be the kind of strategist I admire. The lack of senior strategy talent where I work might be worse for me than I'm able to realize. I'll never be good enough. Why can't I play the game? The game of politics. Do I even know what I'm doing? Sometimes I think that all I know is fake and someday everyone will discover it. I'm too much of a messy puzzle to let people close. Better kept at distance. I'm unemployed. I tell myself I'm lazy too often. I'm a junior strategist, so no one trusts my judgment. My work quality isn't good enough. It looks like it's not good enough. I'm not smart enough to be strategic. I have no original thoughts. I'm not interesting. So there are a few themes there, aren't there, huh? Not good enough, not clear enough, not interesting enough, not capable, don't deserve it. And uh, what, what I wanted to play with, and you might have seen some of these diagrams on uh, probably on the Instagram, is what if we play, apply strategy to ourselves? What if we think of the, the business issue that we're facing? Maybe some of these thoughts are holding us back and our business issues that we're, we're being held back. We feel we're being held back. We're not getting promoted. We're not getting access to opportunities that we want. 
But here's the thing, what if the audience is you? This is not to blame, it's just I think any time you go through these, these kinds of thoughts, I do think it's worth shining a torch at yourself and thinking, hang on, what if it is me? What if it isn't as well, but what if it is? <laughs> and then to actually try to write down a problem statement that you're trying to solve for yourself as the audience of you, and then try to solve it. I also think it's worth wondering, you know, why have so many people interacted with the... I've put it in a few places on the internet, you know, why have so many people interacted with it? I mean, there's general thinking about why we interact with things on the internet. And typically it's because we see ourselves in it and the thing that we see helps us understand ourselves better or not feel alone or both. And because of that, we can then make more sense of ourselves in the outside world some kind of revelation, confession. Sometimes there are the words that are used better than the words that we can use. There's some of the dynamics that tend to go on with the things that we interact with on the internet, let alone things like identity, like how you want to form your identity. So, and what I don't, and I've said this before, I'm not really a big fan of all of this pointing out biases and virtue signaling, vice signaling, you know, virtue signaling and vice signaling. So virtue, you point out what's good about you bias you point out what's bad and sometimes they're the same thing and it just becomes a silly game of intellectual pretzel donut wrestling and it's like come on just just live just exist the biases are definitely worth knowing about but if you're all that person in the group who spends your time in the conversation pointing out everybody's biases that's so boring It's not that smart. I mean, it, it's interesting, right? Like you, you learn about these biases and all the things and the ways that we behave and you point it out a little bit because like, oh, that's so interesting. But it's a little bit obnoxious at times too. So then a couple of days ago, I asked uh, Instagram crew how they talk back to themselves when they catch themselves like this. I think there are about 60 answers, so I won't read all of those, but I'll give you some. I'll give you about 10. And I think these are in the order of, was it the first to last or the last to first? Anyway, Moms says, look where you were 12 months ago and look where you are now. Angus Ian, everyone is basically winging it, just keep going. In Tim's eye, trust yourself. Uh, Meg WW, what would you tell a friend in your same situation? Anything like that that shifts perspective is really useful. Victor Frankl talks about that in Man's Search for Meaning. A lot of psychology books talk about it. And I will re-emphasize what I think I need to say every time I talk about the mind is that when we're the way we're talking right now, we're not talking about deep, painful trauma. Although maybe some of these techniques are useful, but I'm not going there because everyone's, everyone's different. And uh, I don't want to be flippant with what we're talking about. This is really just... You're beating yourself up a little bit, you know. Tiger burning. At least I'll never suffer from delusions of grandeur. RG Logan. Everyone is making it up. Rolls eye rolls. The perfect answer doesn't exist. Be committed and believe it. You can't be so wrong. Drew speaks. I'm still here for a reason. 
dog yawn. I remind myself of three words I chose to describe myself when I was at my best. Ken Cullis, Can 5 A good strategist always finds his or her way out eventually, so stay calm until you find it. Nice, but Dimutu says, use the doubt to question the idea. Could it be better? How? Is there another way to look at it? Okay, they're all. You. This is you just doing strategy at your at yourself, at your thoughts, trying to get different perspective, trying to get distance from them, trying to stick your elbows out and wedge that thought away from the bear hug that it's doing to you, so that you can try to see it new and differently, and therefore see yourself new and differently. And these are useful techniques, whether or not they last, or whether or not you can apply them all the time. I just think use what works, try it, write it down. Writing with the hand and the brain. That connection is powerful, says science. Maybe record yourself speaking to yourself in positive ways. Consider going to sleep like that for a month. See what happens. I don't know. It's just interesting. All right. So I work out how to get all this stuff up online in a more coherent way, where I have the, we will have the questions and then some of the responses in one place. I'm not sure how soon I'll do that. The next few weeks are pretty hectic, and then I do want to get some time off, but we'll work out how to get it up there. And if you ever want to chat, just DM me on Instagram. Like I said, I find Instagram a nice, vulnerable, peaceful place right now, and uh, I do try to respond to everyone. All right. Did you know that... I don't know if you've been to Central Park, but I, I think one of the... One of, the more fun and more affordable things you can actually do in New York is take a boat out on the lake. I think it's about, is it $15 for an hour? We do this every year or so, and every time I do it, I think, why don't I do it more often? And it's just beautiful. There's, you know, at peak hour, there might be 100 boats out there. You all know the scene. You've seen it in the movies, that the particular lake. I've forgotten what it's actually called. I'm just walking past it now. But if you come to Central Park or you come to New York and it's good weather, walking the High Line's free. I mean, there's a lot of free stuff that you can do. And then, yeah, let's say it's 15 bucks. Take a boat out, go for a row. It's good fun. We did it about a month ago and the hour went so quickly. I was like, oh, I've got to row everyone for an hour. That's going to... That's like a long time to row because if you've ever done a row on a rowing machine for five minutes, that's exhausting. It's not like that. <laughs> it's more like a stroll. Okay. So now I'm going to get to the questions. I don't have everyone's, have everyone's original names and it's just a bit painful for me to bounce back and forth between the questions on Instagram and then the Instagram account and then sometimes the names aren't there. So if you haven't listened to this before, if it's a bit strange, this is just stream of consciousness thinking out loud and uh, let's see what happens. So the first question is from Jen Tots. How do you sell a strictly executional client on adopting and sticking to a brand idea? It's a good riddle. <laughs> I mean, uh, obviously, you want to... Ah, oh, come on. That's a tough one. If I accept the riddle, you know I'm going to have to change it. I have to push back on that riddle, kick it in the shins a little bit. I mean, I would try to educate them on what the opposite of that is or what not being like that is and the power of a brand idea and the consistent and the power of being consistent to a, to a brand idea and that would involve digging up not digging up but finding a lot of the recent market marketing effectiveness research 
showing examples, running days with them. The challenge with some of that, though, is if they're literally just trying to... like, You might get briefed by a client who's super executional, and they're, they're looking for jobs. They're trying to get out, and they're just trying to keep their existing boss happy. So even, even that question, you kind of got to break it down a little bit. Like, what's the actual state of the person? And that might sound a bit funny, but it's actually pretty common in the business development world. And if you... I've mentioned this a couple of times. When I talk about the power of problems, I, I often reference some research that was put together or put in public in, an, in a Harvard Business Review article called The End of Solution Selling. And a lot of salespeople, they don't just accept the brief as it comes to them, they try to sell the problem or find a new problem to sell. So a lot of what they do is problem selling and at least a better sales. But they also might have a criteria or a set of criteria when they're looking at whether and how to work with a client. And one of them could be that the, the client their business or their category, their industry is in crisis. Because crisis can lead to change. So I think thinking through the clients that you have, because like if you've got a super junior client who's only able to say no and not to say yes, and you're not getting access to the CMO or the senior marketer, and whether it's, I'll assume that it's marketing, that the context that we're talking about is marketing, then it's gonna be very difficult to get that person to change well, sorry, I was going to add, and if they're thinking about leaving the job, <laughs> it's going to be very difficult to get that person to change. So then you have to work out what their psychology is about, if you can, who are the influences of the decision, the stakeholders, and then try to educate what you think is the right thing to do. Um, the only other way is like a kind of workaround or a hack which is to slide a brand idea in and then you play the custodian of it. Your team would play the custodian of it for several months so that it hopefully becomes just the thing that you're executing. But I imagine most agencies love to make things new, so it's gonna require a couple of internal guardians on that note. And guardians only because of, only if you believe it's gonna work, only if you're your research, the marketing effectiveness papers, and your uh, your work in public, only if it's showing that it's work that it works. Otherwise, you're adhering to a false principle, and you, maybe you don't need a maybe you need to change the brand idea. So, rock is the role of comm strategy becoming more valuable today, or more valuable for the future at agencies? This is a really difficult question. So, let's talk about what comms planning is. And there are other people who, like, I haven't, I'm, I stretch into this a little, but there are obviously people who are, well, experts in it. I feel that the main question that, that, that comms planning is trying to do, so we're going to, so we're talking about communications planning in a media agency or a media agency-like environment. Comms, not in the way that PR uses it, but more in the way that media planning or media agencies use it. Media planning is different to comms planning. So media comms planning is an, a more creative act that you would work with media planners uh, on once you have the idea to work out where the actual media goes. The theory is that when you communicate in the world or when you communicate a brand or a product or a message that the message is more powerful when you put it into contexts that are somehow connected to it. So the joke example I often use is about the New York Knicks and the basketball team 
and based on a bunch of other stuff, which I won't go into right now, let's imagine that there's some kind of brand strategy for the New York Knicks or campaign strategy about for the New York Knicks, which is about how, acknowledging how angry they make New Yorkers feel. Uh, from what I understand, if you can put that into environments where anger is, where anger could be, where quiet anger is, where it should be, then that makes the communication much more effective. Okay, media planning tends to be more linear, more literal, more about, often, not always, more about efficiency. A comms planner is trying to focus initially on effectiveness. What's going to make this more effective? And then let's find out about efficiency. And so two of the key interaction points, and this is not, this is not dogma, but two of the key interaction points for comms planning might be when you're getting, when an advertising agency is getting together a brief and they talk to the media agency or the, whoever's booking the media and they're like, where might this go? Give us like four or five channels. Where might this go based on the audience that we're talking to? So you include that in the brief, you get your idea. And then the comms plan tries to make that the media plan idea-led so that if it's about anger, you know, let's say there's something, and there's, there's so many different ways to structure this stuff. Let's say the main communications idea, the thing that all the media plan is going to go through is some kind of thought that we're going to cure New York of New York anger, which means we're going to look at places in New York where New York anger is really specific and it's, it's quite intense. And we're going to appear there. And then what you're thinking through, because that gets you to the comms idea, is there could be three to five main messages. Could be one. Could be three to five main messages. They could be formed from an understanding of the customer journey, the path to purchase. Often they're about obstacles. So for New York Knicks, for example, maybe one of the obstacles is the New York Knicks never look like they're trying. Could be that they look too expensive or that they are too expensive. Could be that the food's not very good. So then you've got to think about whether you can change the product and then how you address those three particular obstacles if they're the three most important obstacles through the idea of anger, through context, which are about anger. And that's all it is. Uh, like I said, this is, this is stream of consciousness with about the fifth helicopter flying over us, but it, it, I don't know, it makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you. So then the question is, is it becoming more valuable? I don't know the answer to that. I think it should be more valuable. However, I have friends who, or I know people who run like global media agencies in the US and also who've, who've had regional roles outside of the US. Often the point of view that I hear is that the scale is so big in the USA that a couple of things happen. One is it's all about efficiency, just bang it out don't want to have to think as much. This is not, I'm not saying that people in media agencies don't think but at all. Uh, but don't want to have to think too much. Don't want to make it difficult. We've got these huge global deals to fulfill with publishers, etc. And then other friends are more cynical. This is, this is not me saying it, so this is gossip. But other friends are like, no, New York and Chicago and Paris, that's where like the, the, large, the large companies just try to get the money out of the system. And they allow the more interesting work to happen where there's less, less uh, budget at risk for their own agencies. I've heard that from multiple people. It's not, I don't know whether it's true. Okay, but you've got just the huge operational pressure in large cities on large media budgets mixed with media agencies that do want to get the money out. And then look, there's other incentives going on like 
And maybe this has changed, I think it's changed, but sometimes clients get certain perks from spending money in certain places. And all these things come into, that's just three things, but all these things come into tension with a creative approach to media planning. A more creative approach, like what, what we would call comms planning. So I think it should be more valuable if we're focused on effectiveness versus efficiency. But that requires you of the right people who can think creatively, who are a bit rebellious, who will defy some of the rules, and who are not just looking to shove a bunch of money and programmatic and just bang it out because it's easy. And sometimes I've worked with agencies and that's what they do, and, I'm, and they're big, and I'm like, that's incredible. I, I, could not, I would feel bad doing that. That's not how I like to operate. And then I think, wow, they've really built a big business around that. Am I an idiot? <laughs> so... My answer to that question, so rock, it's many hours there, is the role of comms strategy becoming more valuable today? I think it can, and I think a couple of the reasons are that it is an immediate, it can be, if you do it intelligently, an immediate conversation about money where brand strategy can be a little removed or campaign strategy can be a little removed. Someone who's doing comms planning can go, you know what, we're gonna work out how to spend your money more effectively, do you want that? Who's gonna say no to that? You get to teach them along the way for a lot of people, but who's going to say no to that? And then the other thing that comms planning can do is it can help coordinate, um, you know, all the different people, the different teams, the different agencies working on it in what will seem like a more agnostic way. So that's good. Oh, then the third point is, and I've uh, I sort of took a lot of this stuff for granted a long time ago and then moved cities and where some of this stuff wasn't mainstream. And... I will point out that Naked was one of the specialist agencies in this field, and I don't think they lasted very long in New York, not compared to the other cities, and I know they've sort of merged and been bought out in various places, including by BMF in Australia recently. Uh, and, from, and from having talked to people, I think, in, I think at least one who was in a managerial role in the US, it was actually quite hard to do what the UK office might have done or the Sydney office would have done with comms planning. But there are a lot of great thinkers out there, and I'm sure a lot of you followed them on the internet. So the U.S. is, is a definitely a, it's a different market for some of this stuff. Um, but the third thing that can be valuable, for, especially for agencies and creative teams, is that unlike a, an account planner, an account planner can more immediately run into friction, sometimes through their own doing, where they're just difficult, they're unclear, they're dealing with cliches, big words. Sometimes because other people think that they're the strategist, sometimes the creative teams think that they're the strategist. What do I need a planner for? Whereas a comms planner goes in and goes, tell me what your idea is. Oh, New York Knicks, anger management, got it, okay. Well, here's how I can help you make more work. You know, so I, I think there's something really interesting about that role. And I do think it could and should be more valuable. But it's flying in the face of a lot of cult, like embedded culture. So the embedded culture in America, I would put under the word pragmatism. It's a very pragmatic culture and a very it's a culture but just execute 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 it's not everyone but it's, it's i've read enough about it to believe that that's one of the main cultural dynamics here comms planning can seem unpragmatic <laughs> until you can show people how pragmatic it is okay draven fan I'm not sure exactly how to answer this. I'll ask the question if someone else has a good answer on this. So the question is, because my question to people was, have you got any questions about strategy? But this is one of the questions I got back from Draven Fan. People know the benefit of mobile payment, but why some still stick to cash? Well, I mean, the obvious one is like a lot of people don't like changing their behavior. People might be skeptical of technology, giving people their data. Maybe they don't have good devices. 
Maybe they don't want to get ripped off. Tax. There's something touchy about cash, right? It's in your hand, you give it to someone, it feels kind of cool. Maybe they've read research about how not using cash might lead to you spending more money. There's a whole bunch of reasons there. Carolyn Runk, how has strategy changed since you started? Who were the first strategists? Okay, so if you've heard me talk, you know I use words like strategist and account planner interchangeably until I'm in a room where the actual difference matters. The word strategist is more, definitely more American. The UK would, I think there's been a shift towards that word but uh, people who've been around for a while would really want to be using the word account planner and account planning. I always found that title a bit strange, but I get it. So then the question is, how has it changed since I started? There's more stuff to do, that's for sure. I mean, I came in to, so I've been in agencies, agencies since I was about 19. I was a digital producer. We didn't have digital strategists, so I did account management, project management, information architecture, user experience, you know, the few of the projects I did in my early to mid-twenties, I was doing 300-page functional specifications, which was, like, I used to really love it, you know, do my keyword research, talk to people. Uh, a lot of the information architecture I did back then didn't actually involve as much qualitative research as I would do now or since. So we're talking late 90s, early 2000s. I think a lot of these fields even though some of these fields have been around for a long time, I think in the advertising and marketing sense, they were still forming their ways of working and their, yeah, their ways of working. Um, so it's changed because there are more strategists. There's more people doing strategy. In the US, there's strategy everywhere. And everyone thinks they're a strategist in the same way that everyone thinks they're a writer or a creative. By everyone. It's obviously not everyone, but a lot of people. Enough to make it murky. Everyone's important. Therefore, why are you more important than me? And if you're not more important than me, why should I trust what you're saying? Even if you've got numbers. Um, in the agency world, obviously the margins uh, have shrunk. Agencies are combining and recombining. I think people are struggling to sell strategy in some markets, and maybe that's everywhere. I do think for a long time that it was just the way that good agencies worked and the you know procurement wasn't as involved procurement wasn't as fiddly i don't really know when that kicked up I, i'm gonna th i think it was like after the financial crisis of 2008 that's when i started to see that pick up and is it um oh, what's that financial law that came in barnes socks uh, yeah 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 socks lee barnsley socks 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 anyway the financial reporting requirements got much stricter procurement bloated I don't know if it bloated but it became more painful and I guess that's a form of bloating so maybe procurement bloated me uh, like at one agency for example where I worked it was just the way that we worked was there was a multidiscipline team sometimes the strategy folk actually did the writing because there weren't writers and I, we'd be on calls with procurement and they're like hang on you've got strategists to do the writers I don't know which box to put them in on my form because we're trying to compare apples with apples and so the procurement's had a huge impact on commodifying the industry, making it like for like. It's a highly subjective industry and they've just, you know, affected it. Then I think in general, the fact that there's a lot of, a lot more ways to outsource work creatively, strategically has affected strategy. 
Uh, I got frustrated with the data-driven phrase that's popped up over the years because, you know, every, everything's data-driven. I think people don't understand the phrase when they're using it very often. Programmatic, it's easier, it's cheaper. I think there's, uh, in business and in the engineering mindset, sometimes resentment of people who do creative work. Sometimes there's resentment of advertising as being a tax for a bad product. You hear that a bit in the startup world. Even though many... Uh, the, I won't name names because of my triggers on you, but there's definitely some pretty well-known names in that VC world that are talk about brand and advertising and marketing as being a good thing, not a thing to avoid. I do think a lot of the, the sort of less spine and less... Uh, People are a bit scared. I think there's some shaming going on by the management consultants who come in and call everyone else. Like, kind of refer to. I don't know if they really refer to it, but I hear these sorts of things indirectly. Just words and pictures. People being the creative people, and the strategists and planners are often the most vicarious in their work, literally, because they're channeling research that they've done and hoping that, that the way they channel it, <laughs> it goes through their channel and reaches a creative team that then puts it out into the world. And I think that's one of the more, more difficult and more ambiguous roles for people to really wrap their heads around in a world that's trying to get more pragmatic. Another question from Carolyn Runk, what's something you wish you had done as a strategist starting out? Well, I don't know. I mean, what I would tell myself is often the stuff that I write about now and that I talk about now, which is to try not to disappear into a, into a career. It's a good place to hide. It can be a good place to hide. It can be a great place to find yourself, to find out about the world, but it can also be a good place to hide. And what I would tell myself, based on me, is uh, just try to stay creative and active and and make things and keep publishing things. I mean, I've always done that sort of stuff, but I have had a few years where I went quiet. So I would just try to encourage myself to, to stay creative in my own world and also to stay physical. Because when you're working long hours, you know, I had kids, well, my wife and I had kids, I was like 28. And then you might find yourself a year or two in just being exhausted and you're like, oh, I'm not expressing and I'm not being, I'm not moving, what's going on? Ah, gotta get out there again. Maybe it's time for me not to answer with stuff that I'm thinking a lot about. Just, I would encourage myself to see strategy as a sport of writing, an art of writing, whatever metaphor you want to use, and to really embrace that at a slightly younger age. I didn't get too twisted. You know, I see a lot of strategy these days where I'm like, I don't, I don't understand that. And I know, I know some big words, but I don't understand that. I don't think I ever got lost in that, but I also didn't hear enough about just this encouragement to use short, sharp, powerful, strong, weird words. Clear, but also those things too. The punk rock shop, Tom A. Given most clients don't get and can't buy strategy, does it need a rebrand? It's a big question, Tom A. Uh, given most clients don't get and can't buy a strategy, does it need a rebrand? Well. I think a lot of people think that they do the strategy. I mean, I've been in enough meetings with clients and then different agencies where everyone's presenting strategy. 
I remember presenting campaign strategy in one of my, my first years doing brand planning and the media agency people were presenting their strategy and the person literally said to me, why are you presenting strategy? I'm doing the strategy. But they were doing media strategy. So whether they don't get it and don't buy it, I think one conflict, if you go up to the, see I don't know how far to go with problem behind the problem and maybe we need to do a campaign around this and actually throw it around for a few days and see where we end up. But it does go back to the, the thing that I think England's talking about a lot more than anywhere else, which is effectiveness versus efficiency. So if you can re-establish the, the conversation around effectiveness and then talk about account planning or strategy and then creativity as being a, a valuable tool in effectiveness over efficiency, I don't think that's difficult. Maybe we should do something like that as a group if it hasn't been done. I think that's the first step. Then the second problem or the, the a symptom of it's not even a symptom of that problem, is that, especially in, the, in countries where there's a strong emphasis on the unique individual, I'm a strategist, I'm strategic, and I've worked in places that brought in strategy. Other people were like, but I, that's what I do. All of a sudden there's a role called client strategist, which is not doing strategy for the client, it's working out how to sell to the client. But that was like a a rebuff of bringing this uh, discipline in. So I think you've got the unique individual and a lot of people seeing themselves as a strategist. That's the second point you, I think you'd have to address in this comms plan of ours. This, well, this is not a comms plan yet, but these are some of the obstacles we'd have to address. Because yeah, on the one hand, like you, you want everyone to think strategically, you want that. But also there are people who might be good at it because they do it a lot and they talk to a lot of people and they've researched thousands of people. The third is value. Uh, sorry, third, third point around valuing strategy, I would say stream of consciousness, is we're not, a lot of us aren't that informed about what things can and should cost. And in the past decade, there are so many cheap options, different countries, outsourced options, someone will do you a logo for five bucks on Fiverr. Maybe that's what you need, maybe it's not. But at what point is there a difference? So helping people understand what things cost and why, and then how the different costs you know, lead to better work, more effective work, I think is important. Fourth, I'd say around that is the product itself. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of training. Well, so I'd call it self-development. Big fan of self-development and training. I think a lot of people in strategy roles, and those strategy roles are in more places than ever. And so, you know, they could be in-house. Marketers could be writing creative briefs and they haven't done it before. Um, strategists could be writing creative briefs and they don't have a boss to, after 2008. I just keep hearing these stories that like middle management got knocked out and now there might be a head of planning who's 40, 45 and then a whole bunch of like junior to yeah, ju early early stage strategists and the head of planning is just trying to like often on the pitches. This is assuming that the head of planning is engaged and involved and cares. Not everyone does. There's a lot of people just trying to hold down jobs. They're exhausted sometimes. We've got, to, we've got to make sure that the product's understandable and powerful and useful. And, uh, you know, look, I'm not a big fan. I don't do a lot of projects where I, or I, I'll spend six months on a deliverable. I don't like that. I think that's false. There are times when it's useful, but just because it makes good business sense, I don't think it does the, the, the role many favors. It's not, I'm not saying 
that in an absolute way. There are definitely times where it's useful if you're doing multi-country, multinational research with a lot of different teams and offices across different languages. Yeah, maybe. But for the most part, there's definitely been a, an over-engineering and people giving in to selling hours. So you're in meetings. And people are like, why are we having all these meetings again? Nothing's happened since, you know, we're not making stuff. So trying to get, I think, strategy connected to output and action. And so, yeah, I think, I think it could do with a rebrand. I think advertising could as well. It's very quiet. I don't hear it talk for itself much. I, I, obviously, in the UK, there seem to be a lot more public intellectuals in the space. People who've been knighted. People who are out in public talking about the craft. I don't see, really see that in the US. I don't know if it's just that like people make their money and then disappear. I don't know what it is. If you've got thoughts on that, let me know. It's, it's been something that I've thought about for quite a while. And also a lot of the, the, uh, the publications in the States seem to be more PR oriented and not as aggressive and acerbic, is acerbic the word? Aggressive as, as what happens in the, U in the UK. But I think all of that can contribute to a devaluing of strategy. Plus, you've got all the business schools here who do the strategy, who think, you know, people come out and they're like, I do strategy, why do I need an agency person to do strategy? I just want to buy a social media calendar. I just want to buy a video. What's all this about? Why are you making it difficult? So there's a lot of stuff going on. I do think it would be useful to rebrand. I mean, I'm trying to rebrand it in the minds of uh, <laughs> strategy folk by talking about words all the time. The strategy is using strategy as your words. Few more questions. Jeff Lenton, how do you avoid falling into the trap of reverse engineering a strategy? Well, first of all, it's not a trap. If you do that because the creative is good and you want to honor the creative and you're not just doing it because you didn't do your job and you're not doing it because just because you were lazy or you aren't sure what you're doing, there's nothing wrong with post-engineering creative. Nothing wrong. The point is to get where you need to go. And if you're in a boat and the boat falls apart, and there's a lilo next to you, get in the lilo and paddle. Nothing wrong with that at all. But... The point is to know how to do strategy. Like the point is in your mind to know how to do strategy. I know how I like to do it. And even when I'm doing it, all the little drawings I put on the, on the web. Sometimes I'll spend 10 minutes thinking about them. I'm like, that, I'm just going to put that up. People want to tear it down, they can tear it down. Luckily, it doesn't usually happen to my face. Um, but I would just I would just keep going, you know. So if I'm doing a strategy, which I'm assuming is going to have a creative brief at some point, I want to make sure that it's trying to solve a problem through some understanding of the audience and the competition, and that the sentence or the single matter proposition, the strategy that tries to solve the problem, connects to the problem, the theme of the problem, does so in a new and a provocative way, and is some kind of dare, gets me emotionally agitated, like yeah, exactly. What's the argument here? Exactly. I'm going to argue for that. So if you're not doing those kinds of things, depending on your own philosophy towards strategy, then you are going to be post-rationalizing other people's work. And if so, do it well. No shame in that. If you're working in a company that doesn't respect the discipline, try to make it respectable first. And if they continue not to respect it, well, maybe you've got to seek out somewhere else. MB Jacob, what do you think about the whole purpose theory? Uh, <laughs> talked about this a lot before. I see this debate happening way more in the UK. To the point that sometimes when you go over there, you're like, oh God, are we going to talk about this again? And then you hear all the, the academics' names. You're like, everyone's using this word differently. 
So I, I just go back. I'm, I don't know if people have destroyed the book Obliquity by John Kay or Drive by Dan Pink. So what is purpose? Purpose is like why you exist. What are you here to do? And this is too glamorous a question, but how do you serve humanity? From what I understand from reading those two books, the main role of that thought is to attract people to the business in the face of CEOs who've just, uh, when they've done research looking at CEOs talking about increasing shareholder value and not having any deeper sense of meaning or purpose, that their share prices tend to fall over time and partly because they're not attracting great talent to create the business that's good. It's just about money. Sound familiar? So I don't know if that's been debunked. I need to look into it. I just get so, like, I don't need to, I don't like spending my hours in the uh, swirl of your purpose is different to my purpose and my purpose is this and your purpose is wrong and all that. I see that stuff on the internet. I'm just not interested. I'd rather do an interview, talk to some good people doing creative stuff. Not to say the other people aren't good, but, you know, come on. Pull your fingers out. Um, so that's what I think based on those two books and other research. But people use the word differently. They use it to mean, like, CSR. So, or it's called social purpose, or people talk about noble purpose. I know, that, like, one of the things that I love doing with what I'm doing right now is, like, I want to kind of give strategy folk a game. That keeps me going. And the act of projection in that is that I'm trying to fix problems for myself. As someone who thinks too much and who's a bit sensitive, I just want to make sure that other people who might identify with that don't feel alone and isolated, because that's a really difficult way to live. Having said that, my aim is not to turn everyone, <laughs> which is like I would never even think like that anyway, but my aim isn't to say that everyone who does strategy, you can only do it if, you can only, sorry, my aim isn't to say that anyone who is going to be good at strategy has to be like that, that's not the point. Lots of different personality types coalesce around strategy roles and they need to, different backgrounds. That's what keeps me going. And then, you know, at some point, you, again, you read Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, his point of view on psychology, that meaning's what you make of it from one day to the next, maybe for a long period of time. And then you build your structures around it. And we used to get that, a lot of us, from religion. Now, to then talk about purpose as being like some campaign about saving butterflies and the product has nothing to do with butterflies and to, to use that as an example of how purpose is broken I think that's a little tricky I don't think that's I don't think that's sincere so that's my point of view happy you asked dog yawn how do you cull is there a fast or easy rubric to know which work or idea is good or best and uh, dog yawn is referring to that problem insight I've been using Advantage, and I think I'm switching it to Edge, <laughs> for those of you who care. Problem Inside Edge strategy, the little drawings I do with the arrows and the dots and stuff. So how do you cull? So I do a lot of work with hand and pen, and I write and write. And when I'm doing interviews, actually, I type them all up as I go. I'll sometimes have 50, 60, 70,000 words. I don't record them, I just type them, and sometimes as I'm typing them, I'll write little phrases down, and then I let it sit in my head. Um, the more you do this... It's not to say I'm any good at it. I, I feel confident in it these days, but uh, you just start to hear things that you haven't heard before and they just, they, they turn you on. You're like, ooh, that's interesting. And you write it down. And you might get one of those out of 60, 70,000 words. You might get 10. 
and then I go for walks or I move. Depends on the weather. If I'm uh, doing exercise, <laughs> which I have phases with, I'll go do exercise, see what happens, see what the brain sews together. Certain words and phrases will linger, then I'll write them down. And then I'll try to sew them into like a problem inside of Andy's strategy. It's like four, basically four sentences. If you haven't seen that, you can just Google how to do account planning and, and you'll see it there. Uh, and I'll kind of write four sentences, see if it works, bounce around a little bit, try to do... I give myself a lot of numbers. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do three of these, I'm going to do five of them. I'll do that. Hopefully give myself a little break. Could be, could be a lunch, could be a day, could be a weekend. I see what sticks and uh, see what makes sense based on the research that I've done. I might share them. If, if I was in an, an agency environment, I'd probably share them. And then um, I type them up into these little one-page strategy stories and I'll, I'll pick like three to, usually pick about three of the, my favorites, the ones that have really stuck with me that I can argue for, that I can point to research about. But when I write them into these strategy stories, they are, it's not done as like a rigorous active strategy. So that's how I work. And the culling just takes care of itself because my brain is like, yeah, we're going to write three of these, five of these, one. What's the one most important, most interesting thing? So I use like in my head, three, one, three, five, seven, ten. Can I write ten supporting points? Can I write five? Apparently the brain likes those numbers. I read that some time ago. I should reread it just in case. The brain now likes 1,020 and I need to try harder. So part of that culling process does, there's two other things going on there. One is, I've mentioned this a couple of times, getting to the edge of your domain. Have you heard it before? So I try to write things that I haven't heard exactly like that before, knowing that until I Google it, I might not even know. And you're like, oh, someone's actually used that phrase before. Okay, I've got to go again. So it can just take time to work out what's, and it's not that you know everything, but you just know enough. To, to have a good guess it wasn't what hasn't been done before and then you got the two other ideas of historically new and psychologically new where you might come up with stuff that's new to you but it's not new in history and if you come across it in history you then have to work out whether it's still okay or whether you want to there's a lot of helicopters here today uh, whether you want to keep going okay last question Mayun Kalu Mayun takes a lot of beautiful photos in Sri Lanka M-A-Y-U-N-K-A-L-U you can find him on Instagram and his beautiful photos. Mayun asks, or says, talk about strategy for CEOs, founders, comma, balancing strategy and execution. Yeah, uh, so it's definitely like how much, how much quote unquote strategy or brand strategy do you need to do before you launch and execute? Because part of all of that, part of executing is customer discovery or product discovery. So you have to keep making things. And that's how you discover like what price you can charge, what, who, who your customers really are. I still think it's worth having a sentence or two in your head about why you're doing what you're doing. Otherwise, you just do anything. Maybe doing anything is totally fine. And you can change it. Um, I often will interview CEOs and founders. If they're, especially what, the people who I, who I see building businesses as acts of self-expression... I might spend three to six hours interviewing them. I don't know what percentage of CEOs and founders they are because there are obviously a lot of people in well, the VC world who are like, what's an industry that just needs to be shaken up that I can mess with? And they're not really doing it on a like deeper personal level, which is not to say that one or the other is better. But if I'm working with someone who's uh, trying to 
build a business that's an extension of themselves, which is actually probably, people listening to this, if you end up doing a business, probably a lot of you will do this. That's what I'm doing. Then, uh, then I think with you know, just a good day or two of thinking, you can get somewhere slightly coherent. And then you try to respect that and honor that with your product development. And then you, you tweak as required. It's difficult. It's a difficult one to answer in any absolute way, like a lot of these questions. Just on uh, just on one o'clock on Sunday in Central Park. I hope you've been able to hear the birds. I like hearing birds. <laughs> uh, and if you've been listening to these walk and talks, they've uh, they're some of the most listened to episodes in the past couple of months. Which is, you know, so <laughs> I was talking to my or answering my own question about product discovery or pricing discovery, customer discovery, I didn't expect to record these rambling rambles uh, and for a lot of, well, for me, and anyway, a lot of people to listen to them. So if you've been listening to them, I appreciate it. Hopefully they're coherent enough for you to be able to take something out of it. If not, hopefully vicariously you've had a walk. If you've been in a long commute or in an office or doing crazy hours, if you're coming to New York, Chicago or LA, to the strategy supersize omega class with Julian Cole, Nantara Dutta, Davis Ballard, Karen Fine. Really looking forward to meeting you. I love doing this stuff. I uh, I don't know if I'll cry. It depends on my I might shed a tear. I get a bit emotional sometimes, so I might might shed a tear. I try not to do it in a bizarre way, but sometimes these things come out. Uh, looking forward to meeting you, and thank you for trusting us with your time and your brains and stay tuned I've got quite a lot of uh, got about eight interviews already recorded and I'm going to do hopefully get like two or three out a week for the next month or two if you've got ideas you can always hit me up at mark.pollard at mightyjungle.co if you're interested in asking questions or asking questions to my questions then at markpollard on Instagram May you go for a long walk this week. May you draw, may you write. May you enjoy time with other people. May you read something good. Take care, my friends. Peace.